from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone.
July 9th, 2019. I'm broadcasting live from New Orleans. Of course, I've been attending the Essence Festival, the 25th anniversary, but also I'll be speaking tomorrow to Delta Sigma Theta. They're having their national convention here in New Orleans, and so that's why I am still here. Coming up on today's show, we'll hear from Senator Cory Booker, uh, who I talked to at Essence, about why he wants your vote as he is running for the Democratic nomination for president. We'll also talk with Congresswoman Val Demings about media and diversity and why our voices matter. In California, the governor has signed a new law banning hair discrimination. We'll talk to the woman, of course, who led that effort in California. Also, uh, a, a shocking story, uh, folks, out of Georgia. Uh, a young man uh, run over and for some reason, they're saying that the guy who did it was mentally disabled. Why is that a hate crime? We'll talk to Kevin Marshall's mother also uh, on today's show. Uh, tomorrow is the last print edition of the Chicago Defender, founded in 1906. I will, sorry, 1905. I will explain to you my thoughts about why uh, this is a painful deal for black media and what has to happen in the future for black media to survive in this new landscape. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. Welcome to Roland Martin Unfiltered. I'm broadcasting live from New Orleans, where we have been attending the Essence Festival, the 25th annual Essence Festival. And also uh, what's happening today, Delta Sigma Theta members are arriving. Some 20,000 are expected to be in New Orleans this week. I'll be keynoting uh, their college division luncheon tomorrow. So looking forward to that. Uh, and hopefully the uh, Wi-Fi is going to be pretty good in the convention center. And we'll be try we'll try to live stream that speech uh, tomorrow. I want to get right to uh, the census. Breaking news here: uh, a federal judge has has re rejected the Trump administration's uh, plan to switch legal teams involved in the census case. Remember, the Supreme Court uh, kicked it back, saying they wanted more answers as to why as to why um, the Trump team wants to put a citizenship question on the census. Department of the, 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 of course, Commerce Department announced they were moving forward with printing the census until Donald Trump sent a tweet out saying, no, he was going to issue an executive order to put the question of citizenship on the census, which is kind of hard because he really can't do that. So I want to go to my panel right now. Uh, joining me there in Washington, D.C., Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Dr. Jason Nichols. University of Maryland, Department of African American Studies, Malik Abdul, Vice President, Black Conservative Federation. Uh, and so it's quite interesting, folks, uh, to see the Trump administration uh, sitting here uh, desperately trying to uh, put the citizenship, citizenship question uh, on the census. Malik, the Supreme Court pretty much gave them an out, but then they, they, they decided to <laughs> act a fool. They listened to the Supreme Court. Now Donald Trump 
wants to be so adamant about this. Uh, can this man take no for an answer? Yeah, I'm not really sure what's going on here. I initially, when I heard about this, I, I got it all wrong because I assumed that the conservative justices on the court ruled um, the same way as the liberal just, justices, but I don't think that happened. I think that John um, Justice oh gee, I can't remember, Roberts was actually the tiebreaker there. I'm, you know, from, you know, much as you said, you know, they were told to, the Trump administration was just asked to explain what it is that they were do, you know, the intent behind it. So I assumed initially that that's something that they were going to do, but then it seemed as if they decided not to do it. So I really, I, I don't know what's going on. It should be easier to explain that. The, I, the fact that the judge, the federal judge rejected the notion um, with their um, intent to change lawyers. I don't even know the rationale behind that. I don't know if just finding a better lawyer would help the situation at all. It seems like what the justices were looking for was just a better answer, not necessarily a, a better lawyer. So it seems a little confusing at this point, but it, this is where we are, unfortunately. Yeah, but Kelly, look, I mean, the Trump administration, they're constantly confusing when it comes to any of these issues. And let's just be honest. I mean, look, Take your butt whooping like a man and go away. But to keep trying to, first of all, the Commerce Department heard what the Supreme Court said. Then Trump sends a tweet out, I'm going to try to issue an executive order. You can't just, just, you can't issue an executive order as if the Supreme Court doesn't matter. There's a lot of things that this president can't do that he's going to try to do anyway because he is a narcissist at heart. Um, a lot of people are saying, like my panelists here saying, you know, they don't know what's going on. It's confusing. It's, it's not all that confusing. They're just stalling um, because they were told if you don't have a reason for this, it's basically going to be dismissed. So they have every stalling tactic available to them um, to try and stall and try and basically find a reason that's not racist, but you can't find a reason because it is racist. So. Yeah, they need to let it go, but you know how Trump is. He's not going to. So we basically have him doing circus stuff in court, and it's crazy. Well, the census is a critical issue. Uh, we, we, of course, we live streamed the summit a few weeks ago. Uh, black leaders got together talking about the importance of it. Uh, and the reality is a lot of people, uh, Malik, have absolutely no confidence that Donald Trump's administration really wants to count everyone. Uh, this is important. I've talked to people uh, in the Commerce Department. Uh, it is, frankly, a mess over there. Uh, you don't have a real plan. How do you reach out to African-Americans, Latinos, and others, people who historically historically have been undercounted? Uh, and so it's a little hard to even trust this administration with going forward and having an accurate census count. Yeah, and, and I... You know, the, the idea that Trump doesn't have a lot of goodwill out there really isn't surprising. Um, I, don't, I don't think that this, the asking the question itself is racist. I don't know what the motivations are. We can assume what their motivations are, but I don't think that asking the question is racist. But it seems like the process and how we actually get there, that does seem to be a mess. I'll agree with you with that. And, you know, that does seem to be a mess. But I can't understand why is it that they can't get this right. This is one of those instances where, again, the justices said, well, explain yourself. Obviously, the answer that the um, federal government gave initially was not sufficient. And so that's why they said that you need to explain this yourself. And so now we're here with the Trump administration. I, it's, 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 it is hard to figure out, I mean, that 
the idea that we even got here. Um, I don't know. I don't think it. I don't know if it will be difficult, especially for African Americans. I don't know if it will be difficult to really do an accurate count. I don't know if that's something that's different. You know. Yeah, actually, actually, Malik, it has been. It has been one of the greatest concerns has been the the idea of undercounting. Uh, that has constantly been an issue uh, because because of folks not necessarily trusting, uh, and also the government not really having an understanding of how to reach people. Uh, Kelly, that is an issue. And look, this administration, uh, they they lie. They lied, first of all, by saying they wanted the citizenship question to protect the Voting Rights Act, something they don't give a damn about. Uh, and they lied consistently about why. We now know because we got the hard drive of the white guy who died in Florida that it was all about undercounting people of color. And so, frankly, people cannot trust this administration, this Commerce Department, to do the right thing when it comes to counting the census. No, absolutely. And... While the question itself, are you a citizen, is not on its face racist, again, the court is asking for the intent behind the question, which is racist. And if they can provide a rationale that is not racist, then we have something to talk about here. But the fact of the matter is, they don't have rationale outside of bigotry and racism to put this question on the census, which is why the question is not going on the census. And like well, I said... Again, the issue... I'm beyond the question. What I'm saying is they can't be trusted to even uh, do an accurate count. So I want to go to my next story, actually, and I want to pull... I'm going to ask uh, Congresswoman Val Dibbings about this. She's from Florida as well. And so so before I talk to her about what I want to talk to her about, let me pull her in here. Uh, Congresswoman Val Dibbings, you're there out of Florida. Uh, are you Concerned that this administration is not going to do all it can to properly count all Americans. Well, you know, it's a shame that we're having this conversation. Um, the census, as we all know from its inception, has been about counting persons so that governments could provide the proper level of service. The Supreme Court has even weighed in on this, and it's not surprising to me, Roland, and it's it's pretty sad. But now the president is defying the Supreme Court and wants to do a workaround to include uh, a question about citizenship on the census. So to answer your question, no, I have no faith and confidence that this president, this administration and his enablers will do the right thing and let's count people and not ask questions about citizenship. All right, now let's talk about uh, the issue that you're here for. Uh, coming up is going to be the Multicultural Media Correspondents Association Dinner and Summit. Unfortunately, I will not be able to attend because I'm here in New Orleans and talking to the Deltas tomorrow. Then I'm here to the Bahamas to cover Bishop Neil Ellis's uh, gathering conference. Uh, but uh, this is an issue uh, that when you look at the White House Correspondents Dinner, guess what? It's pretty damn white. Uh, and you have serious diversity questions in media across this country, especially when it comes to folks who cover the White House and Capitol Hill. Uh, and But not only that, Congresswoman Demings, you know, I, I'm the vice president digital for the National Association of Black Journalists. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus joined with us uh, in taking a CNN to task, specifically its CEO, Jeff Zucker, for having no black direct reports. Uh, he finally got the message uh, and appointed a couple of folks, uh, a, a senior vice president for diversity and inclusion, Janita Du, as well as uh, up upgrading Marcus Mabry to vice president. But it is stunning to me that here we are in 2019, we're having to have to yell, kick, and scream to get folks like Jeff Zucker to say, how is it you have no black direct reports, no black executive vice presidents, 
No black senior vice presidents. No, uh, until now, no black vice presidents. No black executive producers. Well, you know, the summit that we're having, start, it's being kicked off with the dinner tonight, the summit tomorrow, is all about increasing media diversity and making sure that America, the, the industry, and everybody who's not listening will listen and increase diversity. You all know there was a report that came out 50 years ago that said we needed to increase media diversity. Sadly, yeah. if you look at the numbers, they have not changed at all. Matter of fact, and, and, you're and seeing not change. like those newspapers and other media sources, outlets, are struggling to either stay in business or have gone out of business. As you well know in the, in the business that you've been in for so many years, how we tell the story matters. But more importantly, I think, who tells the story? And so we are introducing uh, legislation. We're introducing a resolution that will um, increase awareness, educate uh, communities and the nation that, look, this is still a problem. We need to do better, and we're not going away. Well, Congressman, I think, the, Congresswoman, the only way I think uh, to get their attention, I think uh, just like uh, when, um, uh, of course, uh, see, there were some issues with CBS and black embeds, uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters uh, called them to Capitol Hill to meet with her, and CBS executives did that. I think, uh, frankly, uh, the CBC and others uh, need to call Jeff Zucker, CNN CEO, to Capitol Hill and say, explain yourself. Explain how you've been CEO of this network for six years and only you, your hand was only forced to, in order to promote African-Americans to see level positions. I, I just think that shining a light in darkness is the only thing here. Because here's the piece, Congresswoman. You're right. I've been involved in media since I was 14 years old. And the thing is, nobody reports on media. And because the media will, will quickly, CNN will do stories talking about uh, the lack of diversity uh, in, in ad dollars being spent by the Democratic Party or lack of diversity among the Republican National Committee, the lack of diversity among Democratic staffers, but they won't turn the lens on themselves. And I think that external forces like NABJ and Congress must hold them to task, and not just Jeff Zucker at CNN, but every single other network and media outlet, because Ashley does an annual media survey uh, about diversity, and not even 20% of the nation's newspapers bother to fill out the diversity survey. Well, and you're absolutely right. I mean, look, Congress, lawmakers, from the local up to the federal level, I think we all have a responsibility to make sure that we keep this topic open, but not only just talk about it, right? Um, we want to see the numbers increase. We want to see action. Remember in the fact that media is responsible for 20% of the economy. And so it's not only about who tells the story, which is so very critical that it, stories will be balanced and accurate, but it's also about economic development. And so our responsibility is to increase uh, opportunities in this area. You're right. Uh, Congresswoman Waters was right on, spot on by going directly to the source. There's more that we need to do, and we will do it. And I'll tell you this here, the other issue is now also in the digital space, because essentially what happened was the lack of diversity that we saw in television, in newspapers, in magazines, and in radio, then when digital blew up, guess what? They hired the same people 
who are not hiring us at those uh, outlets now on the digital side. And I just believe calling them the Capitol Hill and forcing them to reveal their numbers. And these are publicly traded companies. I know Congresswoman, Congressman Gregory Meeks uh, has a bill uh, that, that will uh, call that calls for publicly traded companies to reveal their sort of top-level executives. We, we've called for a civil rights audit of CNN. Uh, there are other companies who we're, lo we're looking at as well. And you're right. They must show their numbers. And not just, oh, here are our total black numbers. No. Who are the executives? Who are the people next in line? Who are the people next in line? Because if we don't have power in terms of controlling uh, the narrative, then all we're simply doing is asking somebody else for permission to tell our story. It's absolutely correct. And, you know, uh, Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm said, if you don't have a seat at the table, bring a folding chair, right? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to demand, and, and, and you're absolutely right, it's about decision makers. Look, we, you know, it's about people in key positions and those executive positions that can be involved in the decision-making process. And so, you know, I'll start or end where I kind of begun is that we have an obligation working with people like you and people who are interested in this particular subject. Um, the, like I said, the dinner will kick off uh, tonight and then we'll do a summit tomorrow where we're looking at how to increase opportunities, looking through and analyzing those numbers and how we can better hold people accountable because uh, this issue is not going away and neither are we. Well, again, uh, whatever help that I can offer, I'm certainly uh, am there. Uh, again, I would love uh, just like that was that reparations hearing, that discussion, I would love uh, for one of these congressional committees to call network presidents, to call top newspapers, to call the magazine industry, which is woeful, uh, to call those leaders. Uh, and, and not only that, and the last one here, Congresswoman, I know you have to go, the advertising industry. Let me tell you something right now, Congresswoman. What we're now seeing, black ad agencies are dying on the vine. Because what used to be multicultural marketing has now been taken over. Now, now is the mainstream. And when you look in these ad agencies, you have very few African-Americans in leadership positions. And I can tell you personally, black media is having a very difficult time being able to get those dollars because there are people who have no clue who we are, who don't know what we do. And they're the ones who are determining where those dollars are spent. And so we're talking about billions upon billions of dollars that are available, that are being spent, that we're getting frozen out of. And I just think that uh, putting that lens, shining that light on them uh, is critically important because, look, we're 24 years away from becoming a nation, majority people of color. Uh, and if, uh, if minority media outlets, black, Latino, and others are getting left out in the cold, which we are, then it's going to be hard for us to be able to pay staff to tell our own story if we can't afford to do it. One of the panels that we're going to have tomorrow at the summit deals strictly with advertisement. And as I said, the media industry makes up 20 percent of the economy. And so you're absolutely correct. There are not only opportunities that are being missed, but millions of dollars that are being missed by persons who are very talented in this field. But they are, you know, have missed opportunities. So uh, we're excited about tomorrow. But tomorrow is really about developing best practices and coming out of that summit tomorrow with an action plan that we will put in place.
Well, again, I wish I could be there, uh, but certainly uh, count me in in terms of uh, working with this. Uh, I'm, I, like I said last week, uh, I'm uh, running unopposed for Vice President Digital, uh, and so to the CNNs, Jeff Zucker, and the rest of these media companies, I ain't going anywhere on the board of NABJ, uh, and we're going to make sure we're going to keep pushing and holding these folks accountable to ensure we don't get left out. Congresswoman, thanks a lot. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Uh, going to go to a break right now. When we come back, uh, we're going to uh, have for you my interview with Cory Booker, which took place at the 25th Annual Essence Festival. That's coming up next, Roland Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roland Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roland Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roland Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. All right, folks, uh, welcome back. Uh, uh, Essence Festival just concluded. Uh, thousands upon thousands of folks, hundreds of thousands of folks, were in New Orleans for the annual event. And one of the folks who spoke to the folks here was Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Of course, he is running for the Democratic nomination for president. Had an opportunity to sit down with him. Here's our conversation. Hey, folks, Roland Martin here, the 25th Essence Festival. Joining us right now, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, Senator, how you doing? First of all, you know I can't start off without talking about your pocket game today. <laughs> we have this thing. Every time I see him, it gets better. This is some wild stuff right here. Well, this I, is, I don't know if that's I, a pocket I, square I, or a I feather. Debuted, it's a feather. Right. I debuted this at Essence about six, seven years ago, Steve Harvey and I were going at it with pocket squares, and I said, I got something for you this year. I, I'm impressed. And I hit him with the feathers. You are. <laughs> so my sister, who is, a, who is an artist, so she actually makes custom-made. After I did this, people have been ordering custom-made feather pocket squares. <laughs> I just want you all to know, first of all, this man is setting standards in fashion as well <laughs> as in radio and TV. I'm honored to be on with you always. All right, glad to be here. Uh, first of all, uh, is this your first Essence? You've been here before? No, I've been here before, okay. man. What kind, of, what kind of brother doesn't want to come to Essence Fest? I've met several first-timers. Really? Yes. Yes. Well, well this, is, this is where I, I like to just walk the floor like I did today. Right. Because you just see this, this incredible gathering of black excellence, uh, incredible women. I feel like in many ways this is kind of like a family reunion. Oh, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've skipped many family reunions to be here at Essence. Yes. yes. So I tell my family, don't put on July 4th weekend. I ain't yes. going to be there. Yes. When you talk about that, this idea of black excellence, obviously uh, there are serious issues that are on the table for this audience here. Uh, when you talk about, uh, obviously, economics, when you talk about entrepreneurship, uh, when you talk about education, health, all of those different issues, uh, what do you think it, is a, it was going to take for you to connect with this demographic to get them to support your candidacy for president? Well, first of all, I can only be who I am my entire professional life has been spent in black and brown communities working on the issues you're just talking about. I came out of Leah Law School, moved right into inner city Newark, lived in the projects for almost a decade, and I still live in that very neighborhood right now. And we've done things. You walk around my block, I can show you. Vonda, who we helped get access to capital, open up a business that's thriving now, parking, double parking, triple parking, just to get into her soul food restaurant. I can show you the school that now is ranked one of the best schools in America. So these are issues that this is not me just talking about what I'm going to do as a presidential candidate. Right. This is stuff that I've been doing as a mayor that turned around a black and brown city with a, with a coalition of folks. 
you know this as a as United States senator, the issues that I have picked, whether it's opportunity zones to move capital into underinvested in areas, or the criminal justice bill, the only major bipartisan bill that passed this president was the one that I led from the Senate side that liberated people from mass incarceration, to even on health issues fighting for sickle cell anemia because it was undervalued and underinvested in, fighting for things that people don't think about, like making sure dental care access, which in our communities is important. So there's a whole lot of people running. The 2020 elections doesn't stand for the year, stands for the number of people running, 20, 2020. But there's one person in this race who has for their entire career dealt with the issues of communities that have been left out, looked down upon, left aside fought and won battle after battle after battle by pulling people together to solve these problems. And I'm going to be the kind of president that puts this kind of agenda right in the center of the presidential work that I'm going to do uh, during my two terms. Uh, I saw one report that said you have not qualified yet for the next debate. Uh, that's in less than 30 days. Um, the, the debate in September is going to be in Houston on the campus of Texas Southern University. Right there in Third Ward. Uh, I went to high school literally right across the street. Many of those issues right there in the community. Here's what I would, it's not my advice, but here's what I, that I want to see. Uh, I saw the last debate. I frankly felt that the moderators did not ask the type of questions that we're interested in. And to me, that's where I think uh, where candidate has to not go rogue, but literally say, wait a minute. Let's talk about what's literally happening outside the doors here. I get it, it was in downtown Miami, uh, but when you go to Michigan, Okay, Flint is still an issue, infrastructure and water. To me, that has to uh, be in front and center at these debates, because unfortunately, the people who ask these questions, they're not from these communities. So you saw, in fact, people mentioned this to me, that just about every answer, I brought it back to neighborhoods like mine. I talked about the shootings around my block, uh, because we have mass shootings every day in the aggregate in our country. I talked about the struggles uh, in my neighborhood of people having access to things that people in other communities take for granted. Look, this election, I agree with you. Uh, for us, the best thing that ever happened to me was that last debate because people saw me on the stage next to candidates, 20 million Americans. We had our best fundraising seven days after that. Got us thousands and thousands of new dollars, $1 donors. And please, go to CoreyBooker.com if you want my voice to stay in this. So we're closing in really quick on making sure we hit that 130,000 donor mark. We've passed 110,000 donors already. And we're just gaining momentum. And you can know that no matter where I go, now, I stand and represent. If you walk into the Senate office right now in the Capitol, you will see a massive map. The biggest thing on the wall is a map of the first people to take a chance on me, uh, a map of the Central Ward of Newark that got me into elections. And the tenant president of the projects I led to just asked me one thing. She helped me get elected. I wouldn't have gotten elected without her. She said, don't forget where you came from or the people that took a chance on you to put you in office. And that's why these issues, I'm with you. I'm frustrated when people don't talk about the issues that we see going on in too many communities around America. And when I'm on that Detroit debate stage, as a boy who was born to a mama born in Detroit, as my grandfather in the black northern migration got a job, a union job on the assembly line that took my family out of poverty, I know the issues of our community and I will continue to stand up and fight for them. What do you make of Democratic candidates who are ardently opposed to charter schools. Uh, you know what happened there in Newark. Yeah. Uh, there have been a number of more than 200 uh, leaders of color of uh, charter schools who have sent letters to Senator Bernie Sanders and others saying, look, what your position is wrong on this. Uh, the thing that I say in Michigan, as in support of charter schools, Betsy DeVos and her people screwed it up there 
but you also have a screwed up public school system. At the end of the day, black parents want something that's going to succeed, and they don't care what it is, long as it's helping their children. And I just think that Democrats are wrong for that position. To me, you can do both. You can support traditional public schools and charter schools. I support success. I care about what works. Well, don't lump me into Democrats, that broad brush, because you know what happened in Newark. We were under state takeover. We had schools that were not serving the genius of our kids. And I stepped up and said, I just want great schools. And we fought and leveraged so much, though. We have charters. I actually closed bad charters because right. I'm like, if you can't perform, get out. I made one enrollment system that, that, that literally now we're the number one school system in America for beat-the-odds schools, high poverty, high performance. If you're going to come after schools that are working for my black and brown low-income kids in Newark, you're going to have to come through me. Now, look, charters, you and I know, only 3%. Right of the public schools in America. Why create these false divides? That's why I keep saying, how does how can 3% of the schools be the problem for 97%? We, we need to get back to focusing on public schools, public education. That's why my teachers union in New Jersey support, endorsed me twice for the United States Senate. My vision as a president is to getting localities the resources they need, raising teachers' salary, making sure we fully fund special education, doing the things that we know that local leaders, if they're given the power and the strength and the resources, they can make sure every kid succeeds. That's why I support public schools. That's why I support, that's why I will fight against these Republican schemes, as you said, like Betsy DeVos, that often, that often messed up our school systems or tried to privatize school systems in a way that would hurt kids. Last question, it is education. All is back and forth between Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris over busing. I think what they have missed, they keep, folks don't want to talk about, busing was, was the word that replaced desegregation. And I think we got to get back and keep the focus on we have segregated schools and we have white parents who are sending their kids to schools. They're in better shape than black, black parents and they don't want us in their schools. And so I think there's a whole back and forth over busing was good, was bad. Look, Robert Smith gave a speech in Morehouse. He said busing is what gave me an opportunity. That's why he's now the richest black man in America. And so I think the game that being played is wrong. This is about segregated schools in this country. I'm so happy you said it that way. Segregation hurts all of us. And one of the biggest sources of segregated schools is segregated housing. Right. Policies that don't let African Americans afford to live in neighborhoods. And segregated housing is tied to blocking us from getting opportunities when it comes to jobs. You want to know something? I don't know jobs. if you know this story. You know why I, I, I had the opportunities I did? My parents were denied the house I grew up in because of the color of their skin. They had to get a white couple to pose as them to buy the house that we grew up in that had incredible public schools. And my brother and I were the first blacks to integrate this neighborhood, have a tremendous, tremendous set of opportunities. So this idea that we can exist as a nation divided against each other, we need leaders that can heal, bring people together, and affirm that in America, everyone should have equal opportunity. Yep. And, and by the way, when we're together, we do better. Senator Cory Booker, Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you, brother. All right. Folks, they're back. MarijuanaStock.org has another great investment opportunity. If you were lucky enough to invest in the last crowdfunding campaign, you know they raised a lot of money in just a few months investing in legal marijuana farms. Those initial investors now own shares of a publicly traded company. And, of course, they are very excited by that. Now they have a new investment opportunity that is as good, if not better, than the last. I'm talking about industrial hemp CBD. For those who don't know, the hemp plant is a cousin to marijuana, uh, of course, and then 
then you, uh, has a higher concentration of CBD, which means hemp CBD gives you all of the medical benefits of marijuana without getting you high. Now, until recently, hemp farming was practically illegal in the U.S. and heavily regulated by the DEA. However, that changed with the 2018 Farm Bill, making it legal to grow hemp CBD in the U.S. and creating one of the largest commodities worldwide. They need land to grow all of the plants, and this makes for an incredible investment opportunity. And that's where our good friends at 420 Real Estate come in. Their business model is simple. They buy land that supports hemp CBD grow operations and lease it to licensed high-paying tenants. That's right. They are hemp CBD landlords, and you can get in on the action. You can invest in this crowdfunding campaign for as little as 200 bucks, up to $10,000. All right, folks, all you got to do is go to MarijuanaStock.org. That's MarijuanaStock.org if you want to get in the game. And if you do so, do it now. We're going to my panel uh, now to pick up on that Cory Booker interview. First off, uh, Kelly, uh, I'll start with you. Cory Booker is uh, way down in the polls. What do you think he needs to do to make a move uh, to uh, increase uh, his visibility and, frankly, uh, get in this race? That's a hard question for me to answer, mainly because I want him to not he comes off almost as if he's pandering, and I know that his intentions are great, his record reflects that he's being truthful in his initiatives and whatnot, but it almost feels like he tries too hard sometimes. I don't know how else to explain that, but something that he could do to change that, I guess, is to just keep the course. Um, Make sure that his record is out there. Uh, he needs more exposure. Uh, people in Newark uh, just push for his campaign and and see what happens from there. Uh, Jason, you're there now again. Uh, if you look at the polling where we stand right now, Booker is 1.52 percent or so. Uh, and look, you just saw Congressman Eric Swalwell uh, drop out of the race. Uh, I think after this next debate, if there is some movement by some of these candidates. I think three to four, three to five should drop out. What do you think Senator Booker needs to do uh, to catch on fire? Honestly, what I would say is that he needs to have some images of him on that block mm -hmm. that he comes from. People need to see him interacting with the community. They need to see him because when I see Cory Booker, to be honest, I see a suit and tie Washington guy. So he goes up on stage and, you know, sometimes I would agree with Kelly that He's so intent on looking sincere that it looks insincere. So I, I would say, honestly, he needs to be seen on his block, to be seen with that community. So when, she, when you see those people in that community in Newark saying, this guy fights for us, this guy is one of us, I think that that would make a real difference for a lot of people in the Democratic primary. We know that the, the crux of the Democratic Party is... Uh, African-American people and particularly African-American women. So I think he was, you know, among the right audience. But he needs to show people that his people are behind him and have them do some of the talking and for him to be seen in that community and to be seen as part of that community. Uh, Malik? Uh, unfortunately for um, Senator Spartacus, I don't think that he has a chance at this point. Um, you know, if uh, maybe if he has some sort of viral moment, I mean, we're talking about Kamala Harris, Senator Harris, simply because she called a white man a racist. That's what made her go up in the polls because she. Uh, no, no, that's, that's not what she did. That is a lot. 
But she did not call him a racist. I, I'm yeah. sorry. She, I'm sorry. She actually she, started she with, you're, right. uh, you're not a racist. You're right. She, 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 she insinuated that he was a racist, but she did no, acknowledge. No, But she did no, acknowledge that no, he no, was no, not No, 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 Malik. You're not going to lie. No, I'm not you lying. You just don't Malik, like what I said, Malik, but I'm not lying. Malik, Malik, she did. Malik, she insinuated Malik, that I don't think you're lying. I think you're missing the guy who actually piled around with segregation was a racist. We understand the intent. That's fine. I think... That's not you what she wasn't saying he was racist. Excuse me, folks. I'm oh, sorry. Excuse me. Sorry. You cannot say that she said that when she began the sentence by saying, I do not believe that you are a racist. Right. But she then criticized his comments about segregation senators. And he also, this weekend, apologized for making those comments. But she did not call him a racist. Right, which is why I corrected myself and said that she insinuated such, which is what she did. But the, the reason that we're talking about her now is because she insinuated that he was a racist. Mm -hmm. um, in Cory Booker's case, I don't know what he can do unless he has some type of viral moment. You know, we know who Cory Booker is. I mean, this is not, you know, when he was mayor, whether he was saving people from fires or, you know, staying in. I think he was in the projects or something for a week and he lived off of food stamps or something. A week? You know, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. A I think week. it was a little longer than a week. Well, 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 well either gone. way, I mean, it, it was a stunt. So we've seen him before, and we kind of know who, um, you know, Senator. Booker no one is stunts on I, I, I yeah. Well, again, bomb, again, bottom line is this: here, uh, Booker has to do. Uh, I think a lot. He must do something uh, to make a move because uh, what's what's happening right now: Biden, Sanders, uh, Harris, Warren. Buddha judge, uh, they really are, I think, uh, in that top five or so. Uh, and so he's really going to have to do something uh, to make a move in order. Uh, and look, first of all, he has to qualify for this next debate. Uh, and so the question is, will that also actually happen? Uh, I want to do I do want to ask uh, Kelly this. Uh, CNN has announced who their debate uh, folks are going to be. Uh, it's going to be uh, Jake Tapper, Dana Bash, Don Lemon. And of course, we get the first debate. And you had Lester Holt, Rachel Maddow. Uh, you also had uh, Chuck Todd. Uh, and then, of course, uh, why, is, why is the name of escaping me? My man from Telemundo is escaping me right now. Uh, and it's going to come to me in just a second. But how in the hell have we, we're going to go through two debates and the most important constituency for Democrats are black women and has not been a black woman moderator as of yet? is do they even have black outside of Joy Reid and a couple others um, on the MSNBC side? I can't think of anybody off the top of my head on the CNN side. Frederica. Uh, uh, well, Frederica would work. Um, no, let me tell you something right now. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Zucker's had Frederica Wilson stuck on weekends uh, since he's been there. She hasn't even, they moved up all kind of other people to weekday. And so I can tell you right now, they won't be giving her a shot at doing anything. And uh, that's we have my Neil point. Malika, Neil Malika Henderson, of course, who also covered politics. But hell, you get a black woman who's a White House correspondent in Abby Phillips. You have Abby Phillips. You have uh, April Ryan as a correspondent for CNN as well. well. I don't know no, why no, no, they no, wouldn't. No, no, no. April Ryan is a contributor for she's CNN. A contributor. She's a contributor. White, uh, White House correspondent, American Urban Radio Network, but she's a contributor. And so you just kind of proved my point in that there really is no one on the CNN side to uh, represent black women in these debates and it's unfortunate because like we've been saying pretty much all of this segment black women is what are what's going to uh, get the Democratic vote and for 
uh, a news station, a news network, to not take us into consideration when the, Demo when the Democratic Party is, frankly, desperate for our votes. It, it's, the disconnect is pretty astounding. Well, it's Jose Diaz Ballard, of course, who was with Telemundo, was one of the moderators. Jason, again, going to you, uh, we were just talking about diversity with Congresswoman Val Demings. Uh, the fact that we, these, the first two, you do not have a black woman uh, in the position to be able uh, to ask these questions. Look, yes, you have Samantha Guthrie, of course, with NBC, but look, you got you got a couple of black you got a black woman there uh, who's also uh, in the mornings uh, on the Today Show. Uh, again, this shows the dearth uh, of folks who are in the positions. Uh, the fact that you do not have any of them. There's no black woman who is hosting. Uh, I don't I don't believe, and I'm trying to think right now. Uh, the only black woman who is hosting a an hour show uh, on the uh, a daily show, uh, mornings mid or even prime time, I believe is Harris Faulkner on Fox News. Right, uh, right. <laughs> I don't believe there's a, there's a black woman, uh, there's no black woman hosting a daily show, an hour block on CNN. I'm trying to go through right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no black woman um, on, I'm going through MSNBC, and there's, nope, nope, no black woman at, M at MSNBC. Uh, no, they, so they, the only black woman... The only black woman who hosts an hour yeah, it's on Fox. each day is Fox News. <laughs> right, absolutely. And I think that says a lot. Um, and still there's, there's a dearth. I, I think what you said was so important, Roland, and, and that is that literally they ghettoize black women in all these networks uh, on weekends. So you get Frederica, you get um, Arthel Neville, you get a, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of black women, including... Um, uh, Joy Reid, mm -hmm. they get ghettoized on weekends when we know the viewership is down, particularly on Saturdays. No one, you know, very few people are watching news on Saturdays. Um, and you have, for you know, not any black women. Why are there no black women on the opinion shows in primetime? There are literally none. I mean, you know, uh, you have some black people like Don Lemon, but that's it. So I, I really think... Uh, me news media is missing out on an incredible audience, um, an audience that can be very loyal, uh, and they're, they're completely missing out on that and ghettoizing black women into uh, weekends, which I think is a terrible thing. Well, again, uh, all I'm simply saying is, uh, and of course, uh, ABC has a debate in September. Certainly, I hope Robin Roberts is one of the folks who's going to be uh, asking questions there. Uh, you've got, of course, in the mornings, Gail King at CBS as well. Uh, but it's a damn shame we look at these cable networks. Uh, again, the fact that when you have these major, major, and I, I can tell you right now, I mean, when I was at CNN, I remember they ran this newspaper ad uh, showing the whole lineup of people who are going to be leading our coverage, and there were no black people. You know, and then they rushed to add Soledad O'Brien to the uh, to the mix uh, uh, because they needed some color uh, in the ad. Uh, and it was like, okay, so it was like you didn't think about that beforehand. But again, that's what you're dealing with here. And so again, uh, networks, go find y'all some black women. Seriously, they exist. Well, 
NBC and MSNBC had one in Tamron Hall, but they replaced her and Megyn Kelly. And of course, she's going to be launching her own daytime talk show uh, in September. Of course, we talked to her at Essence Festival, so we look forward to uh, having the conversation with her. All right, folks, so let's just go to this next story, which is really uh, a stunning and sad story, and that is a 20-year-old Kevin Marshall, uh, who's a t autistic, was beaten and then run over, was killed by Joshua Anderson after a July 4th celebration on North Lake Drive in Covington, Georgia. Uh, of course, he was captured today in New York. Uh, Kevin's mother, Robbie Marshall, uh, says she will not rest until justice is served. Uh, and um, uh, so um, do we, do, first of all, folks, do we, uh, do we, do we, do we have uh, the mother? Do we have audio for the mother? What do we have? Okay, so uh, this is really a an unbelievable story, um, Jason, because uh, one, they tried to call this, say this wasn't a hate crime. What yeah. the hell is it? I mean, uh, it seems pretty hateful to me. Um, and I, I'm wondering what, what other motive they could come up with where you would beat someone and then run them over with your car to make sure that they were that they were dead. Uh, to me, it's it's clearly a hate crime. It certainly should be investigated that way. And you know, I don't know if his mother will see this, but certainly, you know, for his grieving mother, I mean, my heart my heart is is hurting for her. Um, you try to protect your children, particularly a child who has a disability, and having them be uh, you know targeted. And murdered the way that he was in, in pain, uh, it's, it's just heartbreaking. So, you know, I, I, we're all with his mother, particularly on this journey that she's on to get justice for her son. Um, what, what we dealt with uh, here, is, um, uh, Kelly, uh, is that uh, Anderson started this whole deal, he began fighting uh, Marshall for talking to his girlfriend. Yeah, and when I read the story, it just had traces of Emmett Till written all over it for me because that's more or less what happened um, in the case of Emmett Till. Only this time, Kevin Marshall was intellectually disabled, which to me makes it even worse. Um, and then the fact, like Jason said, uh, Anderson beat him, like dragged him, beat him, and then... Uh, Marshall was strong enough to actually walk away from that situation. He was going home. He turned his back to him and left the situation, not trying to retaliate, from my understanding of these reports. And he fall and Anderson followed him with a car to make sure that he was dead. So that's premeditated. It's hatred. It was a modern-day lynching. And for it to not be considered a hate crime... I don't see how it's not considered a hate crime. I definitely feel like uh, those who uh, indict reevaluate uh, the charges against this man. Um, Malik, again, when you look at this story here, uh, I mean, y y y you knock the man out, you run over him because he's talking to your girlfriend. Dude, really? Yeah.
It's, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, and I do hope that the, um, he's prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We've, heard, we've had these type of discussions before, especially when the victims, you know, one, one is black or, you know, the perpetrator may be white. And what we found time and time again in the same discussion, I'm sure that's going to come out of this, is that there is unfortunately a very, very, very high bar um, to meet the a hate crime standard. And I think that probably is what's going on here. Doesn't seem like, uh, you know, I can't imagine him not being prosecuted for something, but it's, I think what we're, the reason that we don't know, have that charge yet is that it's just such a high bar that the government sets for something being a hate crime. And I think that's probably what's happening here. All right, then. Folks, let's talk about uh, a bill in California now signed into law banning hair discrimination. Joining us right now is the woman who pushed that bill forward, uh, State Senator Holly Mitchell. Senator Mitchell, how you doing? I'm great. Good to see you, Roland. Uh, it was great to see you here in Essence. Uh, this obviously hugely important bill. I remember a few years ago I was uh, I was debating somebody and they were talking about um, how, e how EEOC serves no purpose. And, and I remember reading, mm -hmm. a, going on the EEOC website, and there was a black woman who applied for a job with the VA in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Impeccable, impeccable credentials. Mm -hmm. um, uh, had all the right experience, degrees, and everything. Yet after her interview, she walks out of the room, and the panel, and a man on the panel goes, uh, I just don't like her cornrows. First of mm -hmm. all, I don't, not that we even cornrows, but he was talking about her hair. And mm -hmm. she successfully sued, uh, won $70,000 in back pay, and eventually got the job. But here was a perfect example of a mm -hmm. black woman with all the right credentials, but some white man didn't like her hair. Right. And that's why we uh, carried Senate Bill 188, the Crown Act, um, to prevent employers and schools from continuing these policies based on our hair. Uh, we all saw the video of the young wrestler. We have heard any number of court cases, um, U.S. Supreme Court cases for the past 40 years a black woman going back to the 80s uh, in the banking industry and the airline industry who were trying to go to work and wear their hair braided um, and, they, and, and wearing their hair in its natural state in what we're calling protected hairstyles, braids, twists, and locks, um, are violating these um, supposed professional uh, workplace standards. And we said enough is enough, and so we introduced the Crown Act. Um, so... How does this work? And so obviously you have this law now. So yeah. let's say uh, somebody believes that they, they did not get a job because mm -hmm. of their hair. So what mm -hmm. happens? So basically we've added natural hair and protected hairstyles, again, locks, twists, and braids, to the list of uh, attributes or race-based traits or traits that are under the protected class under Department of Fair Employment and Housing and Education Code. So protected characteristics like gender, race, uh, religious, religion, um, um, sexual orientation, all those things. Uh, you can't fire me because I'm black or a woman or I'm over 40. And so we've added um, the trait, of the race-based trait of hair texture and protected hairstyles to that category of protected characteristics. 
this obviously uh, has met with a, a lot of praise from a number of people. Are you hoping other states will follow your lead? That's absolutely the goal. We were thrilled to be able to work collaboratively with the Crown Coalition, Dove, and other national organizations, Urban League, other national organizations from across the country. Uh, California was first. I'm proud of that. Um, but we're going to have to approach this on a state-by-state -state basis until federal legislation um, uh, is introduced and passes. And so I know that there are a couple of other states, New York and New Jersey, who have bills in the hopper, if you will. Um, but I was thrilled when our Governor Gavin Newsom signed it into law on July 3rd. All right, then, Senator Holly Mitchell, congratulations. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Uh all right, Kelly, this is, again, this is something that is really important because we know people who actually have been discriminated against because of their hair. I've been discriminated against because of my hair. So when I heard about this bill that passed, I was elated because... My hair has absolutely nothing to do with my intelligence. It has nothing to do with my work ethic, has nothing to do with the potential of great performance that I will contribute to my place of employment. My hair never did anything for me except make me look cute. And <laughs> it has nothing to do with anything outside of aesthetic. Um, I've had to deal with this pretty much my entire life. And even um, some mentors of mine, um, people who had my best interests at heart, who um, were discriminated against because of their hair, tried to give me pointers on how to do my hair, this, that, and the third, um, to basically uh, dissuade people from, uh, you know, just talking about my hair and not about what I'm bringing to the table. But like I said before, my hair didn't get me any of my degrees. I went to law school with this hair. I went to college with this hair. I'm at work now with this hair. And it has nothing to do with anything. And the fact that it's, we have to go through this, it's the fact that we have to put this into law. It right. just shows just how inherently racist this country is um, and how bigoted this country is towards black women in general. Um, but but I know, am but, grateful but, but, for the but protection. Kelly, it's not just black women. Uh, uh, Jason, I'll tell you, uh, Steve Perry now talked about this here. Steve Perry uh, has, you know, really shiny, wavy hair. Uh, and we, we were at CNN. Uh, there were a couple of people at CNN who literally came to him to ask him to change his hair because it, it was too shiny and wavy. And he was like, <laughs> hell no. Yeah, I've never heard, you know, maybe I've spent too much time in the African-American community, but I've never heard your hair can be too shiny and wavy. Uh, that's usually, those are usually pluses uh, in, in my community. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that, and even actually, uh, I was going to mention, I believe it was Hampton University, that even some black institutions uh, have discriminated against other black people uh, for the way they wear their hair. We have to stop this. And, you know, it, it is it is a white privilege uh, to be able to go to work and to always know that your hair, the way it grows naturally, is always acceptable. It's always acceptable for work. But for black people, it takes all this prep. Sometimes they ask you to chemically alter yourself. Mm -hmm. So think about that. The way that you are naturally is not suitable or acceptable or professional. And I think that that is, you know, if there's a statement about white supremacy, then that's one of them. Um, that is one of the major ones. Malik? Yeah, I think it was a good decision, you know, for California, and I think it works. Any other state that wants to follow that, Jason kind of stole my point um, that said, you know, to spread this out, 
that this isn't just something that white people do. This is something that, you know, unfortunately is something that a lot of people face even in the black community and not just particularly at Hampton universities. You know, we have these people who are hiring managers. You know, we, we also sit at these tables where we make decisions based on how people look. You know, I've had conversations with people, you know, extending it beyond hair where the name, you know, and of course, I, I, there's no probably no such thing as name discrimination. But you know, that's why we're in an era yes, now. Yes, okay. Okay. Well, yes, you... that was a study done. Okay. Was a study done a few years ago in Boston. Uh, well, what they did was they took uh, they took uh, the exact same res resume, mm -hmm. applied a white sounding name, mm -hmm. a black sounding name, and the white sounding name got a 50% more callback for jobs and apartments than the black sounding name. Yeah, well see, and they, well, there, there you go then. So it's really not that surprising to me that this, this type of thing still goes on today. You know, I think that's part of the reason when I'm having conversations with people, you know, some of my friends who have kids, you know, they name their kids very vanilla sounding names. You know, they're not authentically anything, you know. So I think this is, you know, it's an unfortunate thing, but this is something that we definitely have to deal with. And, you know, my name is Malik Abdul. So. I get it all the time, <laughs> you know, airports, you know, oh, what's I don't... your name? <laughs> Malik Abdul. <laughs> Malik? Malik. Malik? Malik. Yes. M-E-L. It's like Mel. Malik. Malik. People, people, people say ma, they, they say ma, you know, so hey, I just, I just roll with it. <laughs> Malik. Malik. Yes. Malik? Malik. Yes. Oh, I'm going to talk about you more now. All right, then. Let's go. Malik? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to really talk about you more now. All right, y'all. Let's go to our last story here, and it's a really sad one. Uh, tomorrow will be the last print edition of the historic Chicago Defender. Of course, Chicago Defender was founded in 1905 by Robert Abbott. Uh, it, has, it became the leading newspaper for African Americans across uh, this country. Robert Abbott used the pages of the Chicago Defender to lead the fight um, uh, against racism and segregation. Uh, of course, he was followed by John Sinstack, uh, his nephew. He took the paper over. Uh, the Bud Billiken Parade, of course, uh, is uh, was a staple of the Chicago Defender. Uh, now it's a separate ch charity, but if it wasn't in the Defender, frankly, it did not happen. Uh, and uh, tomorrow, now the paper's going to continue in digital form, but tomorrow is the last uh, print edition. The paper used to be a Start off as a weekly, then it became a daily newspaper, uh, five-day-a-week newspaper. And then, of course, uh, it later uh, switched back to twice a week. Uh, I actually was the uh, executive editor of the Chicago Defender from 2004 to 2007 uh, when it was last a daily newspaper. Uh, the decision was then made to cut the paper from five days to two days a week. Then it went to a weekly, and now there will be no print edition. It is uh, it is somewhat sad, if you will, uh, that we are actually at this point. Uh, it is bittersweet for me as well, uh, because uh, if I dare say, in all of my career, this probably uh, the defender probably was one of the most frustrating. Um, uh, moments I had in my career. So let me explain that. Uh, took it over in 2000, part of a group that was looking at buying the newspaper in 2000. We examined the financials, the editorial, uh, and then there was, there was an investor out of Chicago who brought, uh, who brought us in to look at it. 
And then it was four years later, then when I, I met uh, some folks uh, who did eventually buy the paper, uh, I was brought on as a consultant uh, in July of 2004 and took it over three months later as the executive editor. Uh, I knew about the importance of the Chicago Defender, and I believe that the Defender could have uh, become, again, a national brand in a major newspaper. Uh, we lost money our first year. We made about $100,000 in profit our second year and about $400,000 in profit our third year. So you might ask, well, what happened? And I think, guys, if y'all have the covers, uh, some of the covers when we took it over, uh, you can go ahead and show that. One of the things that I did was change the mass head. It had not been changed uh, in half a century. Uh, gave it a whole new look in terms of our design. And so, so we have those. Go ahead and show them, please. But, but, but here's the thing that why it was so frustrating. Uh, while there, um, I launched the first audio black news source podcast. This is in 2005, folks. 2005, 14 years ago. Launched the first video podcast by a black news source in 2006. That was 13 years ago. And so the owners of the Chicago Defender came to me, is that the, the folks who own the paper came to me and they said, well, you know what, we really just want to remain a small newspaper. And that was so frustrating to me. And that's actually why I left. Uh, the Defender, this decision to stop printing the paper, the reality is it should have been made five years ago. And the problem I have with this, and I have no problem saying this, as somebody who has been in media since I was 14 years old. And that is, too many of our black media institutions are dying because they refuse to keep up with the times. Let me say that again. Facts. They're dying because the folks who own them refuse to keep up with the times. I remember, and I'll just be, look, I remember when we were negotiating my contract with Tom Joyner uh, with Reach Media, and I was talking about we need to podcast my segment. No, 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 we want to put it in the play. I'm like, what are we doing? People are going towards podcasting. This is five-plus years ago. All of a sudden now, podcasting has blown up. Guess what? They're behind the curve. Why is there no black major entity doing podcast? Think about it. Think about it. You have no, there's no black news show on any of the cable networks, black owned cable networks. What is black media is losing its influence because too many of the owners of black media are not keeping up with the changes. When I was in Dallas, Texas, we had like seven or eight black newspapers. Now, I remember I was working on the newspaper and James Washington, Jim Washington, who is the publisher, and he said, he said, Mr. Mark, why are you always uh, trying to put uh, my friends out of business? I said, because Jim, you're charging $2,500 for a full page ad when you should be charging $12,500. I said, there's too many black newspapers in Dallas. I said, Dallas, D Dallas Weekly, the Dallas Examiner, the Dallas Post Tribune, the Elite News, Minority Opportunity News in Arlington, that was LaVita News in Fort Worth as well. There literally were seven or eight black newspapers in one region. Y'all, the Dallas Times Herald shut down, leaving the city of Dallas with only one daily newspaper. So why, does it, why is that important? Because the trends were showing 
the marketplace couldn't support seven or eight. Now, I know there's somebody out there who's saying, yeah, but doesn't that mean more black businesses? Yeah, it means more small black businesses. Mm -hmm. It means you don't have a black media institution that has capacity, that has scale, that has the ability to hire 20 and 30 and 50 and 60 and have reporters here, here, and here because you don't have the revenue. That's really what my frustration is. Chicago, the, the vision that I was sort of thinking about was one where we should have been having lectures and having uh, the same thing that you see political in the Atlantic, these conferences and these seminars, and also generate revenue. Now, they're doing some of that, non-traditional revenue, but it's not enough. I also remember when we were moving location, people were fighting me. We, we, we need to stay in the building. I'm like, y'all, we use 10% of this building. It would have cost us literally eight to $10 million to refurbish the building the Chicago Defender was in, and the whole company wasn't worth eight to 10 million. And I say, y'all gotta make up y'all minds in Chicago. What do y'all want, the building or the paper? And so I know there are a lot of people who are sad that they're no longer printing the Chicago Defender. But guess what, folks? The New Orleans Times Picayune made the same decision. They're owned by the same company owns Condé Nast, Advanced Publications. Now, what happened down there? Guess what? So folks who used to work for the Times Picayune went off and started a competing newspaper. That newspaper grew, got built in size. You know what they ended up doing? They ended up coming back and buying the Times Picayune. Why am I walk going through all of this? Because what we have to understand is this here. Black media is not immune from what's happening in this media industry. Black media needs to stop acting as if they somehow are different from everybody else. Do y'all understand that Essence Magazine makes more money off of the Essence Festival than they do the magazine? Mm -hmm. Folks, it's dropped out. The advertising business has dropped out of the magazine industry. Black Enterprise. If it wasn't for their events, their conferences, Black Enterprise would not exist. So what am I saying? What I'm saying is, and I did this commentary a few months ago, there are too many Black media silos. There are too many small Black media entities and here and here and here and here and here that are not doing things in a major way, that don't have scale, that don't have the capacity to be larger. That's the problem. And so the defender is five years late in making this decision. I'm telling you right now, had I still been running the paper, yep, I probably would have made this decision in 2012, at the latest, 2015, because the economics had changed. I'm frustrated because I desperately wanted to build a digital database when we were there for this very reason. I remember, look, look, BET is now launched, they're announcing BET Plus, a live streaming service. Great, mm. and they're not black owned, Viacom owns them, but it's a smart business move. Black media folks are going to have to wake the hell up. And I've been saying this, <clears throat> we're gonna have to see consolidation among black media if we expect black media to be able to be here. You can't have Ebony and Jet over here and Essence over here 
and Black Enterprise over here and the source over here and Upscale over here and this website and that website and this website and this thing and that thing and that thing and somehow think they're all going to survive. If you're seeing consolidation among the majors, what, what makes you think you don't, shouldn't have it among the minors? And so I know there are people out there who are sad to see this defender no longer in print. But I'm going to tell you the exact same thing I said when I was in Chicago and I ran the paper. What do you want? The building or the paper? And now, what do you want? Do you want the paper, the physical manifestation, or do you want the digital property? Now the question to the folks who own the Defender, how are you going to retool your staff to actually be competitive? We had the opportunity 14 years ago. I hope they figured it out how to do it today. That's it for me, folks. I want to thank Jason, Kelly, and uh, Melik. <laughs> Melik. <laughs> Melik. Let's thank Melik. All y'all, of course, on YouTube. Y'all can all call him Melik. Thank you, everybody, for being on the show today. Uh, we appreciate it. Tomorrow, uh, we will have a uh, guest host tomorrow because I will be flying to the Bahamas. Bishop Neil Ellis has his gathering conference. I'm going to be broadcasting from there on Thursday and Friday. I got to fly, though, because I got to give speech to the, speak, speak to the Deltas at 1 p.m. Eastern tomorrow in New Orleans. Then I take off uh, for the Bahamas to cover that event. And, folks, this is why we are here. This is why Black, this is why Roland Martin Unfiltered matters, why we exist, because we are here to do what other folks are not doing. There's no black media outlet who's doing this type of show. Not one. Not one. Because we understand where the future is. We understand where we're going. Where we're going is what we're doing is exactly where everybody else is going. NBC has launched a, a streaming service. Fox News has Fox Nation, a streaming service. All of these folks are announcing ABC, CBS. Black media, this type of show doesn't exist, which is why we need your support. Support Roland Martin Unfiltered by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. We appreciate every single dollar, every single dollar. And I'll say this here, as the people who are telling me, well, can we get T-shirts and mugs? And I'm like, we would love to do that, but guess what? That also costs money. So we would rather put the money into the show to give you this. And that's what Bring the Funk Fan Club allows us to be able to do. So please support us that way. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to have my interview with Reggie Hutland discussing The Black Godfather, his documentary on Clarence Avant, which airs on Netflix as we speak. And so I got to go now. Folks, you be sure to have a great day. And thanks to everybody who participated in our, the reading of the 4th of July speech by Frederick Douglass. So many of you saw it. Also, we want to thank Operation Hope for allowing us to live stream the documentary The Color of Money uh, by Ambassador Andrew Young. All right, folks, y'all take care. Holla!
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.